Welcome to Rethink Retail, the show where we dive into the stories and strategies behind some of the most successful brands on the planet. From brick and mortar giants to e-commerce disruptors, we uncover the secrets to their success and deliver the keys to true retail transformation. So ask yourself, are you ready to rethink retail? The future of retail starts now. Welcome to Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine retailers that have a unique history, are making innovative changes to their business world, or are overcoming challenges in order to stay relevant in this highly competitive landscape. This week, we'll be looking at an over 100-year-old department store giant that grew tremendously over the 20th century with the addition of new retail formats, brick-and-mortar stores, and product lines. Through an employee-owned cooperative model, this retailer has gained a reputation by doing things differently while always striving to do better for their customers and employees. But department stores across borders are suffering the same hardships, and this giant will need to reinvest themselves in the wake of evolving demand. That's right. Today, we'll be exploring John Lewis. Checking in for today's sessions are this week's retail therapists, Jack Stratton and Jeff Roberts. Jack runs Insider Trends, a London-based retail consultancy. Known for running retail tours and delivering keynotes globally, Jack's a Rethink Retail top influencer who's worked with brands such as Nespresso, Converse, Ikea, LVMH, Puj, PVH and more. Jeff has worked with retail and consumer product companies in the US, Europe, Asia and Africa. In the UK, has worked with Marks and Spencers and most relevantly, John Lewis and has advised many of the world's largest consumer product companies on retail activations. His first job was setting up the Sears Cosmetics Counter at Northgate Mall in Durham, North Carolina. Good afternoon to both of you, depending on where you are in the world. Hey, and how are you doing? Very well, Jack. Great to see you. Hope you're well, Jeff. Yeah, yeah doing great, Ian. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Before we dive into today's therapy session, let's first begin by learning a little bit more about our patient's history and what got them here today. In 1864, John Lewis opened a drapery shop on Oxford Street in London. And in 1905, John Spade and Lewis took over the business from his father. In 1920, the company introduced the employee-owned cooperative model known as the John Lewis Partnership. And then in 1955, John Lewis launched their never-knowingly undersold policy. Eight years later, the flagship John Lewis store opened on Oxford Street in London. In the early 2000s, the company expanded its stores across the UK and undertook modernisation efforts. 2001, John Lewis launched its e-commerce platform, beginning a period of expansion and modernisation. It opened several new department stores across the UK, including locations in Glasgow, Leicester and Liverpool. Three years later, the company introduced the Partnership Card in collaboration with John Lewis Financial Services. And in 2008, they formed a strategic partnership with Waitrose, which included a launch of the Click and Collect service that enabled customers to order Waitrose groceries online and collect them from selected John Lewis stores. In 2018, a restructuring plan merged the management teams of John Lewis and Waitrose. And in recent years, the company faced challenges stemming from changing consumer behaviour, intense competition, economic factors, rising costs and the impact of COVID-19 pandemic. In response, John Lewis has implemented store closures, 
investing in its online presence and undertook cost-cutting measures and pursued restructuring initiatives, which brings us to today. Let's start off by discussing some of the factors that have led to John Lewis's current condition. What's your take on the current perception of John Lewis at the moment, Jack? So, to be honest, I suppose what John Lewis are going through feels slightly inevitable. I mean, it's part of a a bigger phenomenon that's going on around the world. Department stores are struggling, or more specifically, retailers with lots of very big stores are struggling. (laughs) It's probably the simplest way of putting it. It feels like a difficult time. So I have so much sympathy for retailers like John Lewis, more than most, because I've, for me, in my world, John Lewis have been a company that I often talk about as being a great innovator. We'll come to these points later, but I remember years ago, Jeff will add to this long before COVID, they were doing way more e-com than other retailers like them. They were innovating left, right and centre. And here we are now and they're struggling. But ultimately, I think they're in this uh, this current predicament for a big variety of reasons, Ian. But they can take, well, I suppose it isn't very much comfort, but the only comfort that can be taken within it is that it's part of a much bigger phenomenon. And maybe we'll touch yeah. on this as well. But we see, I think, very similar businesses in the US are suffering the exact same problem. Um, and solving it is is almost the most challenging conundrum in retail at the moment. I agree. And now, Jeff, you you mentioned on your CV that you've worked with them. So you have a a unique perspective amongst the three of us. But what's your take as an American living in the UK, where you get to sort of see both sort of situations with a different viewpoint? So I first moved here longer ago than I care to admit. I I was I absolutely (laughs) fell in love with John Lewis. I thought it was just such an incredible concept. It was the high touch customer service. It was every imaginable category under one roof. I mean, even by American standards, it had things that you didn't see outside of the very largest cities. And so it was just always a great experience. And I think the fundamental thing that they seem to struggle with and what seemed to have continued to struggle with recently is sort of losing their niche, right? Focusing on the wrong things, not really understanding who they're competing with. As Jack rightly notes, right? They were doing really interesting things in e-com before other people were. But the problem is, is that it's almost like they tried to compete everywhere simultaneously. And I think a great example of that is when they, when they let go of the never knowingly undersold promise. I thought that was always a really powerful thing for them. And then suddenly it was like, well, we, we can't compete with e-com in this space because they'll be able to deliver it cheaper. So we'll just forfeit it. And it, to my mind, it felt like it was um, they had sort of lost mooring at that point, right? It was the, one of the things that had anchored them. They had a very clear direction yeah. on who they were, how they played, and where they where they played. And and yeah. it seemed at that moment that things sort of went adrift. It seemed indicative of a wider problem. Yeah, I, I agree. And what's your take on the never knowingly undersold, Jack? Because it was a sort of price guarantee, but I, I never perceived it as will be any price. It was more of a reassurance. I mean, what's your view on that? Jack? Absolutely. You know, it's really funny. Um, growing up in the UK, you kind of knew that it was part of uh, actually, uh, as Jeff mentioned, it was kind of yeah part of the promise. But just to think you knew if someone said, what is John Lewis all about? You'd say, yeah, never knowingly undersold. The partnership model, which was quite, I worked at Waitrose when I was a kid, stacking shelves. I was a partner. So I got a bonus. So that's the supermarket part of the same group, super, isn't it? Exactly. Supermarket part of the same group. So that was a thing. And people thought, wow, it seemed very diff- a very different kind of concept within the retail world. And then, of course, the service thing, which Chef points out, they were the big things. Um, and never know any undersold. I mean, no one ever used it. This is the funny thing. Yeah. I don't remember anyone going into John Lewis or actually using it, but it, Jeff is so right. It really meant something because I think your sense 
and honestly anyone that i know you know that kind of um shoppers who are kind of 50 or above in the uk they have such a fondness for john lewis but you know sadly that fondness i think is slightly nostalgic now but it's a fondness based on that was the idea that the service was brilliant it was almost a luxury experience going in a john lewis store and the products would be great but then that never knowingly undersold gave the sense of oh my god despite all of that i'm still not going to overpay no one yes. ever checked it. It was the principle. It was a sense of not having to compromise on quality. I think Jeff hit the nail on the head. They've lost their niche. They definitely had their niche historically. And I think now with a lot more competitive competitors in the kind of mid-market range when it comes to, say, furniture, clothing, whatever, they're being attacked from all sides. And it's not clear exactly who they're for anymore. I, I agree. And the one to me that really, no, never knowingly undersold, like you say, was almost a, a subconscious benefit that reassured. The bit that really underlined their attention and, and, and quality of service was the five-year warranty that they would offer. So the brand's product that they were selling may have a 12 or 24-month warranty, but John Lewis will go, we'll have a five-year warranty. And to me, that was a real key. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but has that gone as well now, like the never knowingly undersold, or is that something that's still available? What do you think, Jeff? Uh, my understanding is that it's stripped back. So I, yeah. I, I think this is the main thing. Right? So I think for me, it was perfectly encapsulated. What was it, about two and a half years ago when they set out uh, their new mission to be there for life's big moments? I'm paraphrasing. That's not the original. But, you know, when they when they established themselves as John Lewis for life's big moments, I loved it because I thought, right, you finally have a theme that will stitch this entire experience together. Right. You can come in. You can have a obviously a children's section with birth. You can have marriage. So you come and get plates. You come get furniture. You come whatever. Right. And then you can have all the way up as you're getting older and you're moving home upsizing, downsizing, whatever. It stitched the place together in a way, or at least gave the promise of stitching the place together in a way that it hadn't in a long time. And that was live for, I think, all of about three weeks before every day got launched. You know, the new low price segment that they went into with their flame orange yeah. coloring. I mean, it was it was the whole kit and caboodle, really. And it suddenly didn't make sense. It was like, why were you suddenly going to be there for life's big moments? And then suddenly you had a value proposition and it was in no way integrated and it sort of was merchandised in a way that when you walked in, it was distinct from the wider uh, displays. Like the VM on it was weird. And it just, it struck me that it was a lot of, for lack of a better word, it felt like spinning a wheel of fortune, right? You know, they'd come into the office on the day and be like, right, what are we trying today? And then it would like spin it around or wherever it stopped. It was giving that a shot. I agree. Any day to me initially horrified me going, you've spent decades building this slightly premium above mid-market position and you're going to lose it in three months, you know, by doing value. And I know people that buy them and like it and and they will because you you get the perception of John Lewis at a slightly lower price point. I mean, what's your view on that, Jack? And it's bright orange like EasyJet and every other nasty value (laughs) offer. How do you feel that's affected the brand perception, Jack? I think the the problem is that that seems to have happened at the exact same time that Next and Marks and Spencers in very similar categories. So if you take um, if you take clothing and apparel, fashion, um, even furniture, Next and Marks and Spencers in the last year or two are starting to do really well, starting to kind of find their mojo. Um, at the, and then John Lewis have kind of suddenly gone downwards towards their price point. And that has been a disastrous thing. I mean, you can see at the moment, Next are, you know, going gangbusters. They're absolutely hammering it. And I think it's no coincidence that at the same time, because there's no question that Next are taking a fair bit of that margin. And I think to an extent, 
next to probably taking away some of those slightly more premium customers, I guess, you know, with everyone being a bit more cost conscious, they're taking that. So I think, I suppose some people would argue it's logical. John Lewis went more, um, a little bit more discounted at a time where, you know, inflation was rising and blah, blah, blah. But actually, there's plenty of examples of very premium brands who have gone more premium and that's protected them better. I wonder now, it's an easy thing to say, but actually John Lewis might have been safer if they'd have stayed exactly where they were or even kind of reinforced how premium they are. Because I think going downwards, there's too many strong players down there who are doing well. I mean, Mark Suspense are doing great as well and, and they're definitely taking away some of John Lewis's business. Oh, I agree. But I think Marks and Spencers, particularly in the home area, they have that slightly above mid-market positioning as well. You know, they sort of target the same traditional audience. What do you think, Jeff? Because I feel that Marks and Spencers have just found their mojo now, their latest stores. They're closing their smaller stores. They're opening bigger stores, which is ironic that that's almost moving towards the department store environment, but they're doing it well. You know, what's, what's your view on M&S and their impact on John Lewis? It's been amazing to watch M&S. I mean, they really, really have gotten their mojo back. And and you could see they did it through a series of very deliberate and thoughtful operational changes, right? So they really thought about their operating model. And I think that they, it, it comes through and you can see it throughout, right? You can tell that obviously the core M&S was learning from food because I think food always got it right. You know, it was M&S brilliant. food was always pitched. You know, slightly, you know, aspirational premium, I guess. It was sort of in that section of the market. And it was it was great food, great assortment, always beautifully merchandised. You know, you went in and you felt like, right, you know, I'm going to do something nice at home. Yeah. And whereas you would walk through what at the time, well, as little, you know, three, four years ago, you'd walk through this quite dour department store to get to this absolutely amazing food offer. And you could yeah. definitely tell they sat in different parts of the business. And I think now when you when you go in, you can definitely see that obviously they're by bringing in external brands, you know, the M&S went on that major buying spree of buying up a bunch of uh, defunct brands and then relaunching them in apparel. I think that was a smart move. I think they mm-hmm. brought in people with deep retail expertise yeah. and that's helped dramatically. I mean, I would yeah. draw the parallel quite strongly or the distinction quite strongly with what um, John Lewis has done by bringing yeah. in a bunch yeah. of non-retail people. You know, this assumption yes. that category knowledge doesn't necessarily matter. You just need to be a good manager. And that yeah. we can see they're actually just building in layers into the executive team in an effort to try to pack in some category knowledge now. And whereas you used yeah. to have a chairman that ran the show, now you have a chairman and a CEO. And so, yes. you know, I think if you compare it to M&S, which was really thoughtful around where they were doing things and how they were doing things. So better products, better merchandising, you know, better availability. If their e-com and logistics work perfectly, they've adopted Rifid in store for better inventory management. They know where stuff is and how to get access to it. Yeah. Whereas if you look at John Lewis, it just kind of, like I said, they're either spinning a wheel or throwing things at a, you know, throwing darts at a wall and just sort of trying to see what sticks there. And I think if you look at it, John Lewis tends to be, seems to be pushing very big on the, we'll just try some stuff and something will eventually eventually stick, (laughs) you know, like the idea of Mm. going into rental housing. I was was just going to touch on that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Marks and Spencer's and say, hey, we're a retailer and yes. maybe we just need better products yeah. to sell and My maybe we God, need to yeah, merchandise God. them more effectively and they need to be available. The property bit is really fascinating because they announced, I don't know, three, six months ago, they wanted to become a landlord for 100,000 tenants. And I can understand a bit of that thinking in the boardroom when they're having the meeting going, we've got these huge department stores over five floors. Let's only sell in three. We've got two floors above. What can we do? We can turn them into rental apartments, create revenue. And you can almost see that sort of knee-jerk reaction. And we can sell them all the furniture for their home, realizing that 
people. It's not that straightforward. It's not that binary. And interestingly, whereas Marks and Spencers have some big stores and they're looking to sell their excess space as office rental. They're not trying to do that. And and I, I think, was it just last week, John Lewis's property director left the business. Um, there may be a million reasons, but that's probably not a good thing while they're trying to become one of the world's biggest landlords. And my concern is, they're now going to be busy trying to be a landlord, which doesn't fix the retail problems. I mean, what's your view on that, Jeff? They, I think Jeff's point about, you know, tons of little innovations and hoping something sticking. My God, that rings true for me because I, I running retail tours, I took so many people to John Lewis concepts over the years that were really interesting in isolation. So I'm talking about the flagship on Oxford Street in London. They had a kind of connected home thing in the technology department on the top floor. They did that years ago and it was great, but it never, I don't think they ever really did anything with it. They had a concept called like the community hub. They had a room that they would rent out to different kind of social and not-for-profit organizations. It was fantastic, lovely idea. But again, it wasn't anywhere else. Nothing happened. It's so true. They tried so many of these small things, but I remember thinking, actually, what about you learning from these things? What does it mean en masse? What does it have to do with their growth plans? And then the pandemic comes along. And I remember they made the big announcement. They said something like, we're going to be 70% e by 2025 or whatever the year was. And then, and because of that, we're going to close a load of stores. And it was, it seemed, I mean, they got caught up in, I guess, the, the atmosphere of the pandemic, that peak point where everyone maybe thought, yeah, you know, we're going to, some retailers are very smart. New normal, getting rid of well, new normal rubbish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and John Lewis, sadly, we're one of those businesses, I think, where, don't be wrong, lots of stores, maybe Marks and Spencer's next are closing some stores. They're doing it, but they're doing it very strategically. Mm-hmm. It seemed like John Lewis kind of culled some stores pretty quickly. I mean, and I don't know, I, you know, I don't know now looking back on it. I mean, there's some, you take somewhere like Peterborough. I mean, John Lewis, John Lewis is the, was the absolute heart of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other thing. It's not just like a retailer just closing a store it's like john lowe's coming out of peterborough is like um you know a cathedral coming out of a city or something it's like it's such an important yeah. part of that community and i think they massively undervalued the impact it would have i think they undervalued the influence that stores had in those locations on online sales and other things i think you know that's come back to to bite them again i have sympathy because they were nearly at 50 percent ecom before the pandemic so i can understand the logic of going my god we're going to be a you know and getting caught up and maybe like jeff said they were maybe too many tech people in the room, not enough retailers, because retailers might have said, let's not forget, we need stores. Our stores are great. People love our stores. And they didn't do that, sadly. Cognizant engineers modern businesses. We help our clients modernize technology, reimagine processes, and transform experiences so they can stay ahead in our fast-changing world. Together, we're improving everyday life. See how at www.cognizant.com or at Cognizant. Yeah. So what's your take on that property side then, Jeff? Do you, do you see it as something that would help them or distract them or hinder them? I think they have to get back to it. I mean, it was always the centerpiece of it. I mean, Jack makes so many valid points. I mean, and you've seen it, Ian, right? When I remember when, the, when things started to reopen after the pandemic, I know you did the, the full series on visiting John Lewis stores and how it was just, the merchandising was awful. And I think mm. what you can feel in John Lewis 
is that it does sort of, I mean, as, as much as I hate to say that, and I'm not casting aspersions on any specific actors there, but the, the rot starts in the head, right? And so the issue fundamentally is that it seems like there was just a kind of a let go of that the somehow we've got enough good grace or, or good enough credibility with the, uh, the outside world. We don't need to do anything. So you could tell that training dropped off. You know, you, the in-store experience became a case. You know, I used to always go there when the kids were smaller clothes, shoes, whatever, because it was well-staffed. You could always get what you were after, and it was easy to deal with. The last time we were there, and this was a few years ago, but the last time we were there, it was, do you have X? Oh, I don't know. Let me, let me. Do you want to look over there on the iPad? I'm like, well, no, not really, because I've come here you know, for mm. an in-store experience. I'm in your school. Yeah, let me do this physically. Yeah, yeah Exactly. I wouldn't have dragged the kids to Oxford Street, I can assure you, if I didn't actually want to come into a store. So... <laughs> But, you know, the idea being is that it does feel like they've just kind of given up on the store experience. And that used to be, again, it used to be so central. I think about when I first moved here, you know, which was a little over 20 years ago, you would go to John Lewis. And the thing I used to love is you'd go to Oxford Street. And it was a day out, right? You'd go to John Lewis, you'd buy something and you could leave it. In, you could leave it in collections, right? You'd go mm, to the basement yeah. building and sit in collections. And that used to be amazing because you could go do the rest of Oxford Street, whatever, come back. There was person was always super helpful. You know, you got what yeah. you wanted. If you wanted to buy something else, you grabbed that and then they delivered it all together. And the last time I tried to use collections there, it just wasn't it wasn't an option. You know, they're not yeah. even it's not even like a, a BOPUS integration. It, it's more a case that they just sort of seems like they just said, we'll just we have these enormous buildings. They've got some people in them. It, it's fine. It'll take care of itself. And there does mm. seem to, to be a belief that somehow there was enough momentum behind the existing business that you didn't have to do anything. Yeah. Because I think that used to be the centerpiece of the experience. It used to be amazing going John Lewis, you know, and then yeah. I think if they were smart, they'd get back and bring the retail back because that's what made John Lewis, what makes any department store for that matter, worth going yeah. into is the idea that you can interact with the product. You can get expert advice on the product. You can see demonstrations of the product. You know, you can compare the product to other products. You have specialists in store. And that seems to have evaporated. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I've so so many times I've taken elements of how they display a category and introduce products, and I present it as best practice. I remember seven eight years ago, you're just staring in awe at how they presented the sofa area, and they would have postcards where you could take the design home and with the dimensions. And I loved how it recognised that a surf a sofa shopping journey may be multiple visits to the store. So you go for the first visit and they were they were loading you with information for your second visit and all the samples. Mm. And I've seen Made.com, Marks and Spencers, uh, parts of the old late lamented Deb Debenhams applying part of this same technique and how they present the sleep category with samples of sheets. I now own 200 threaded Egyptian cotton sheets because I finally got to touch them in John Lewis. The problem was I didn't <laughs> buy them. I didn't buy them from John Lewis, unfortunately, but... But, but it, you know, they would educate. You'd understand the different pillows. You'd understand the mattress design. I'm not an expert on the logistics and back office of retail was. I tend to look at that physical touch point. And I still look at their t- physical touch point and go, you still do so much so well. You know, they opened the uh, Edinburgh stores it last year or the year before, and I was up there and I got to see it and I'm going, wow, this, you've still got some of that mojo in your visual merchandising, which I still think they have aspects but it's so frustrating. I mean, what are your thoughts, Jack, on where, you know, where some of the physical is still really good, but they're not quite making it connect with customers? Do you see it as, how much of it do you see as being their issue and how much is just this bigger issue of physical retail? There's, there's an out, I don't know enough data-wise on, on how much this has been an issue, but I know that 
I, I think if you asked a lot of people in this country why they used to love John Lewis, they'd say something like, well, when I need to buy a television, I'd go to John Lewis mm. because, yes, I knew I could buy it online or somewhere else, and maybe I would still buy it online. I go to John Lewis because the guy in the tech department knows everything about TVs. And that really, whenever people say things like to me, that sums up of all the great things they do. That was the thing for me, staffing. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that in a lot of their stores, and I don't know whether it's still the same, they used to be fantastic with, re- with retention because they almost became known for, you know, people would know their guy in certain departments who was just the master. Mm. They do still have it. I was in John Lewis fairly recently, and sure enough, the guy in the tech department was just unbelievable. He knew everything about every single new piece of technology. The interesting thing was is that it was really quiet when I was in there, and I, I wondered whether they're, they're not kind of reminding people that that's what they're about. Because when he was talking to me, to me, the clarity was there. I thought, this is John Lewis. It's, it's, the thing, it's that idea that, yeah, you can buy it everywhere, but you come to John Lewis and in actual fact, I honestly think they've probably fallen victim occasionally to people getting brilliant advice on it and then going on Amazon and getting it slightly cheaper. I think that must happen to them quite a lot. I still think they do service brilliantly. I regularly yes. see fantastic staff in there. I think they, they must do an excellent job in terms of their, their training. Um, and I don't necessarily know their incentivization model for staff, but I always felt long before other brands understood experience in store, John Lewis had people who didn't push you to sell. They understood that selling in a store was actually about connecting with a human being on an emotional level, brilliant product knowledge, brilliant knowledge of you as a customer, all that good stuff. John Lewis were always the best at that. Um, And I'd be amazed if that's completely gone from the business. There's no way that there's not still brilliant people in all of those stores. Somehow they've got to bring those people back to the fore, remind people they're still there. Yeah. I mean, certainly human, human, human contacts are one of the unique things of physical retail, isn't it? And it's important you maximise that. Jeff, I wanted to ask you about the partnership model because, you know, they, they are, I'm not saying unique, but certainly rare in the the employees are, are invested owners in the business. Mm. And there's been a lot of news recently because I think for the last two years, there's been no payout to them because of the financial situation. How do you think that partnership model sort of helps or hinders what they're trying to do as a retailer at the moment. I mean, to be honest, I think it's it's one of those things that I think gives them a great deal of external credence, right? So, yeah. because like, I just to Jack's earlier point is that you went there because you knew you weren't going to get screwed around, right? So the yeah. whole point of going yeah. to John Lewis was that you weren't going to get high pressure. You knew you were going to get there. And it felt like that you got that because there was an investment to the people with whom you were speaking we're part owners of the business. And so it felt like, the, okay, right. You know, they, they see this as a long-term relationship. It felt like one of those rare moments where the incentives aligned. You know, what was good for you was good for them. And it, it fit on that front. I, I think it's a great idea. I still think it's a great idea. I think, I think the opportunity of keeping ownership close to the ground, you know, giving something that you can have, it's one of the rare institutions where you can have a lifelong career uh, in the UK these days. And I think blaming that particular structure because they, you know, they were looking at a, potential sell-off of, well, they were trying to raise $100 million in capital not terribly long ago. And so one of the things, that, one of the avenues that they explored was potentially a part sell-off of that. And I think what, what that would have actually necessitated was further downward pressure, if I'm honest. I think the beauty of the existing model, particularly given the straits that they're in, is that you're not getting the real downward pressure if they were, say, publicly listed or if they were owned by perhaps a large private yeah. equity house, which would be just cut, 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 cut you know, the Sears model, right? I mean, maybe not that extreme, but the idea that you could put inordinate pressure on the organization 
ring it out for what assets it does has for those for those stores that it does own. You know, you'd basically spin them into a separate company, lease them back, that sort of thing. You're not getting that. And mm. that's a good thing, right? The ability of where the yeah. company is, it needs the breathing room to think a bit more long term. What it lacks is strategy, quite frankly. I don't yeah. think it's this business model that stands in its way or its ownership model. I don't think stands in its way. I think it's a no. fundamental lack of strategy. I agree. And what do you think of that, Jack? Because I always view the partnership model as it doesn't make any difference to how I shop, but there's a feel good benefit knowing that they're invested in their employees. Do you think that makes, makes a difference? Yeah, I think it's always landed well with consumers for sure. The partnership model, I think yeah. it's been nothing but positive. It works really well on the kind of Waitrose side of things as well. And it's one of those things where I don't think it's maybe listening outside of the UK, it might seem strange, but it's not it's not like it's ever thought of as kind of a, a political thing or something like a co-op. It's not uh, like a cooperative organization or kind of some kind of, um, you know, some kind of socialist thing. It's it's really it's sort of it's it's just viewed in the UK as, a, as an entirely positive thing. I don't think it would have any negative impact at all. I think it's probably more of a strength than a weakness. And with Jeff, I think clearly it's uh, it's about strategy. I feel like I don't, having never worked with them directly, I, don't, I can't say this for sure, but from various people that I've spoken to, I get the sense that John Lewis, and it's part of the problem they have with their strategy, like many traditional retailers, they are very, very conscious of newer generations and Gen Z, and, I, and possibly too conscious and in trying to work out quite how they need to maneuver to suit that audience, actually, they didn't stop and go, hang on, we have, in many ways, the best consumer base, the ones that actually have money in the bank. Um, and they could have just stopped and gone, do you know what, let's focus on these guys. Because um, I felt like, you know, uh, what they're doing with the discounted stuff, that feels like it's aimed at younger people. There's no way that it's hoovering up those people. So it, it doesn't work. So I think, and that's, to me, that's exactly what Jeff was saying with the strategy piece. I don't see yeah. what the strategy is because it's not really working for younger people. And I feel like they're probably losing the traditional customers as well. Yes. I say all of this with love because I love them and I don't want it to, yeah. uh, you know, want them to succeed. In retail, there is no shortage of data. But what if I told you that we've been overlooking the most valuable data of all, our contracts? Contracts define the commercial relationship that power retail. With contract intelligence from iCertis, you can structure and connect this critical business information so you can drive revenue, find savings and reduce risk. To learn more, visit iCertis.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah don't start me on Gen Absolutely. Z. What's your, what's your view on chasing the younger audience, Joe? I think you know my view. I think Jack's absolutely spot on. I think this is a fundamental problem that most businesses face, and retailers are particularly bad for it, is that they chase youth. And they change yes. youth because generally they're the people on the marketing and brand side are young because those jobs don't pay well. So they're just offices <laughs> staffed with young people. And so they come through and they say, well, here's the advice, right? You want to chase these? But I think of what Marks and Spencer's did with Peruna, what, about a decade, 12 years ago, right? Where the idea was, right, we want to get over our stodgy, you know, we don't want to be stodgy anymore. We're, we're not old lady underpants, right? That used to be yeah, the yeah. MS argument, right? We're not just <laughs> underpants for old ladies. Well, we'll launch Perona. It's a younger-focused uh, brand. We'll get that in. You know, we'll bring them through, and that we will have for life. And what they failed to do, and very much this is why, like you know, say it louder for the folks at the back, Jack, is that the, the problem is, is that the key buyer, the key consumer in a John Lewis, and I would imagine for a large part of uh, Marks and Spencer as well, are those that actually have money. You know, they're established exactly. in jobs. They're a bit older. They're over forty. Many of them are probably veering over sixty. And that's not a bad demographic to be in because they have disposable no. income. Yes, they're stable. 
completely and that, and that is a really a really great place to be i think the thing is is making yourself and again this is why i think is what you said earlier ian is that if they had doubled down on perhaps playing to that slightly premiumized view that they always had you know great service good products you know you're going to get the good thing i think they'd be in a much better position because yeah. they become aspirational to pull through yeah, it's like when people talk about Amazon are a competitor. Be what Amazon isn't. You know, watching Tesco's chase Aldi. Yeah. Be a bloody good Tesco. It's not a poor imitation of Aldi. You know, and and, and yeah, I always yeah, feel, when, yeah. especially when people start chasing down. And and also when you shift, I, I just roll my eyes when everyone talks about Gen Z. Yes, youngest generation is the future, but that that's always been the case. And there's a danger you alienate your core base and you lack credibility for the new one. And I, I immediately think of Victoria's Secret have done this massive U-turn from their, you know, the, the was it the angels, all those perfect models. And now every photo is a plus size model. And the core audience that love that sexy, slim audience lingerie just go, well, that's not me. And, and the young audience go, I know what you're doing this. You know, you're, you're trying to be credible and I don't believe you. So you can fall between the cracks. Yeah. And I'd hate to see John Lewis do that in that department store position. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Now, I just wanted to quickly just come back to Waitrose. You touched on that, Jack. And, and for certainly for our US audience, it may not be so familiar. The part of the group is Waitrose, who are a semi-premium a supermarket, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, sort of like a Whole Foods positioning maybe in the UK as a price point. And so it fits in very much with the same demographic as, as John Lewis in the supermarket side, of, uh, sorry, in the department store side of things. Now, a couple of years ago, there was a, a John Lewis concession opened in a Waitrose store in Oxfordshire, which is classic John Lewis demographic territory of, of middle class people. And I went down and it was full of pots and pans and gift cards. And that's all I saw in the John Lewis concession. You know, do, do you feel there is an opportunity to cross-fertilise these two areas? I mean, what's your, what's your view on that, Jack? Do you think there's opportunity there for John Lewis? I think there definitely is because, I mean, much, I suppose, like, like Jeff was talking about earlier with Marks and Spencers and the great job they've done on drawing on the strengths they have in food and improving the rest of their offering. You know, Waitrose has... A really, really strong foothold in the kind of in the grocery market in the UK. Now, they're struggling in some ways because you know they're, they're always competing with Marks and Spencers, but also some of the, the the cheaper guys, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, they are getting better at offering premium ranges that might chip away a little bit at some of what Waitrose are doing. But I feel like Waitrose definitely still among a certain kind of UK customer has an unrivaled reputation, you know, and the food is excellent. And again, I think back to some of what Jeff was saying, the merchandising of, I always think of Waitrose food is so good. The packaging yeah. is beautiful. They're so, so good. They always have been. And it's funny, I always, a bit like with Marks and Spencers, I've always felt that some of what Waitrose have done is a cut above what John Lewis has done. So I think there's benefits to come from combining those two things more. I don't know how beneficial it's been since, I remember years ago when they introduced, you know, being able to do click and collect of a John Lewis product through a Waitrose store. They were one of the earlier businesses to do that. God, that made so much sense. And I thought it was brilliant. I don't know how well that's doing. That always seemed like a very smart move. But there must be more that they can do in terms of it, whether it's a shopping shop thing or maybe just using their data well to understand, you know, if there's a Waitrose supermarket in a, in a certain part of the country, are there certain product ranges they could squeeze into those Waitresses that will sell yeah. well? From my experience, I haven't seen brilliant of evidence of that, but you'd imagine there's a big opportunity there because they still have a good foothold. You know, Waitrose, there's either a Waitrose or a John Lewis everywhere in the UK. 
they do actually yeah. through those two types of businesses they're really really well spread they're a bit more limited on the john lewis format but there are waitresses everywhere so maybe that's a way of of coming back i think it's a good point ian yeah i mean what do you think jeff because i just think you know you can start selling occasions with a combination you know with the weather we have in the uk at the moment it's warm you could sell a picnic occasion where you can sell the hamper and the blanket from a john lewis product with the food to eat from waitrose and then there are so many permutations i mean do, do you see other opportunities with the collaboration see that's completely what i thought was when they when i started to set up these concessions i was really hopeful they'd be occasion based right yeah but it was a, it's when they were talking again about that we're going to be there for life's big moments and I was like, fabulous yeah. they're going to stitch these things together in a way that makes sense and i think the picnic hamper thing makes perfect sense i think that you know the idea you see this i think america's i have to plug the american supermarkets i think are very good at capturing when the weather shifts you get really good where there's the charcoals out next to the beer next to the watermelons that yeah you get it, it they yeah. come through as a, you're going to walk through and you take advantage of this and i thought god what a fantastic opportunity to make it more than just we'll drop some tablecloths and some pans in a waitrose because you know you're gonna to want to set a table again i think it's not it strikes me as somebody who has spent an awful lot of time looking at a balance sheet and that's about the extent of it yeah. so they've seen they've seen pots of revenue and they've said right there's this one here and there's this one here and you know what we should do is we should make them overlap more mm-hmm. and that's it they've just said shove some of that in there and there's no thinking about how do we actually make it how do people actually shop what are they looking yeah. for and where are their opportunities to overlap what they look like? I mean, to their credit, I will say the, the Waitrose John Lewis that is in Canary Wharf, I think, works about as well as a badly integrated Waitrose and John Lewis can work. Right. <laughs> so I think it, it works. You know, you've got the Waitrose on the ground floor and then you've got two floors of John Lewis above it. And it's it's a nice mix. It's easy to flow. There's a good flow through the space. It makes sense in the, in the environment and it's easy to navigate and come through. But I just think all the missing opportunities that they have there to actually better yeah. integrate around what people actually do when they come into the store. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the fundamental thing. I mean, I, I thought it was ironic when I visited that Oxfordshire Waitrose that had the first John Lewis concession. Also in there, they have a, an unpacked offer, which is their packaging-free food offer. Hmm. And what they do is instead of having a dedicated packaging-free area, they'd integrated all of them into the various categories. So the packaging-free coffee was in the coffee aisle. I went, what wonderful way of integration. And then you suddenly had John Lewis concession stuck as an afterthought by the checkout. So they're they're packaging-free. They've done that. They've done that proper integration because you go shopping for coffee, you don't go shopping for packaging-free items. They recognize that. (laughs) But why don't you then integrate the John Lewis? Because you don't need a John Lewis space. You need the John Lewis products integrated into the moments, the the missions, and the occasions. So it was weird because they'd done it proactively in one area and not in another, which was a real shame. But um, I'm just conscious of time. We're sort of coming towards the end here. But what I'd like to do, particularly for our US audience who are sitting there going, ooh, waitress, I don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) I'll start with you, Jack. How do you see... U.S. department stores in relation to some of the challenges we're having here? Because Jack and I were very fortunate. Last week, we were in Chicago, and we were given a tour of the Macy's in Chicago by probably their biggest fan, another rethink <laughs> influencer called George Ann Bender. And we had a chance to see through an American perspective. So what, what's your view on, on how this translates to the U.S., Jack? So uh, the point I made right at the very beginning is, you know, retailers, department stores, whatever, with um, a lot of very large stores. And, you know, Macy's is such a good example of that. And there's lots in the US, right, that are suffering from that similar problem. How to navigate, you know, 
that where is the where's the right point between online and offline how many stores do you need to support online sales in different locations how to get the balance and then if you do keep those stores what do you do with them how do you feel because maybe the ground floor is yeah. is going well but you know maybe you're losing 20 30 percent at each level and then there's no one at the top at all as we found at macy's yeah my view is with department stores a very and i often think of things at quite a macro level because that's the nature of what i do i feel like in terms of what i've seen in the last couple of years I do think there's an opportunity maybe, this is more in terms of a business model, but for department stores to focus a bit more on discovery. I think if we think of a store as being, if you think of a store and its strengths versus online, aside from great service and all that kind of stuff, which to me just has to be, is a given, right? If you go to a store these days, it's so hard getting people to a physical space. Service has to be brilliant. You can't be overwhelmed with product. And there's a bunch of stuff you just have to do. But I think that discovery is a key thing. In interesting new department store formats like, you know, neighborhood goods, which I really liked. And they, it calls itself a department store. It's a small store. But I, I'm not saying that necessarily neighborhood goods is the answer because they're not necessarily a runaway success in every sense. But there's something in that idea of products changing more frequently and more discovery because I feel like in neighborhood goods, the, the product range when I go in there makes sense. So there's, but it doesn't, it, but it still surprises me. It's not kind of a boring experience and it changes regularly. And I, a lot of, I think a lot of traditional retailers could learn from, you know, how do you, how do you get people back into stores and not shopping online? Well, online's brilliant at predicting what we want to buy next. Obviously that's what it does. So I feel like sometimes it's useful to go, well, what's the opposite of that? It's surprising mm -hmm. the customer sometimes. And I, I, final point I'll make on that. A lot of people said during COVID, when they're grocery shopping, there was this thing I read, McKinsey talked about the grocery rut, where basically people got so bored because, you know, the online, online, every we knew exactly what we were going to buy every single week and it became the same. We had the same food every week, same meals, boring. They missed the boring supermarket because they said, even that when you walk around the aisles, there'll be something different on the end of the aisle. It makes you think, oh, I'll try that. You know, that simple yeah. idea. God and bless actually, peripheral vision. That's what I say, exactly. which works so well in physical stores. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what's and that the amazing thing over there? You have Amazon's 40,000 data scientists, right? They can't do what an Asda does or a Walmart, where you have a different, where someone just goes, we're going to promote that product this week at the end of that aisle. There's something in that. There's something in, I think, um, discovery. And I think there's, you know, that whether it's John Lewis or, you know, U.S. retailers, U.S. department stores, possibly. I felt that in Macy's, basically, and in the same way. I felt like, the, the my God, that building is amazing. It's extraordinary. And then the product range, the service just doesn't go anywhere near living up to the history of the building. Yeah. Um, and nothing yeah. surprised me. Same brand mix as every other department store in the world. Yeah. Same looking products. Drab merchandising. So, yeah. No, I Again, agree. I love Macy's. So I don't, you know, but. But it spoke, it spoke volumes that we went to the top and saw all the old displays and the walnut room and the amazing Tiffany's ceiling. And we were there for an hour and then we spent five or six minutes walking through the main product areas lower down and then we left. But Jeff, as, as, as an expat American living in the UK, you probably have a unique perspective here. I mean, what, what's your view on how John Lewis sort of relates to the US department store sector? It's funny because I think it has a lot of the same maladies that a place like Macy's has, right? So Macy's was this absolutely storied brand that did these amazing things. And then it just has fallen. It can't really, I mean, to shamelessly steal from Steve Dennis, it's, it's very much the mediocre middle, right? It just kind of yeah. doesn't know what it wants to be. 
And I think, you know, Jack's so right is that the, the, the fundamental problem I think that John Lewis has and that a lot of retailers that are struggling have is they don't ask the basic question, which is what's the store for, right? And it's for all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. You know, I think the three of us here could probably enumerate a hundred different things that you do in a store from discovery to data collection that will go through that all these things that happen in this physical space. And I think about the U.S. and I'm really going to sound like it's funny because you mentioned being in the top floor of um, the Chicago Macy's and seeing all the the history. You know, I'm going to sound like an like an ancient curmudgeon and I'm sure I'm not. I promise I'm not. Rather, you, You're in safe company here, Jeff. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> I've already complained about my kids. All I need to do is like get off my lawn and I will just come full circle. But but the whole thing, is, to my mind, and I'm going to sound like some sort of drawback, but the big thing about department stores, they used to be local. And when groups mm. like Macy's, like I think about when I was a kid uh, growing up in the South, you had a whole bunch of local department store chains, right? You had Belk, which was local. You had Tolheimer's. You had uh, Dillard's. You had all these ones that would maybe do three to six states. They'd be in different places. And they would have a flagship in a large city, which would be an amazing experience and then whatever, right? And this localism allowed for you to create an experience that made sense in the context of the place that it was. Mm. Yeah. And so I think fundamentally what's happened with all of the agglomerations, have they bought up everybody and they got consolidated, managing an enterprise of that scale, there's only a handful of ways of doing it. And one of the easiest ones is to watch the numbers. Yeah. And so yeah. then it becomes an exercise of like running a large manufacturing operation where it's like, great, now we have a thousand outlets. Let's go to Levi's and get jeans at an even deeper discount than we used to before without asking, does that make sense for every environment? It all just shows up in the same place because there's only so many ways to run that, right? They get more and more centralized and it gets harder. So I think if companies like John Lewis and like to Jack's earlier point about the one in Peterborough, John Lewis is storied in this country, right? It's one of those things that you can say like Marks and Spencer's and everybody gets a little misty and we all go, oh, that's fabulous. And they're institutions, aren't they? Precisely. Yeah. And I think by actually letting them be local, letting them be destinations to where they are, letting the one in Peterborough be right for what's in Peterborough. And yeah. they are with it. I'm not saying everything in John Lewis is run through a machine, but by allowing more freedom to have local and to make it place-based and destination-based. You know, in London, mm-hmm. I think Selfridges has blown this out of the water. Mm-hmm. You know, making yeah. the decision that they are going to be local destination shopping for stuff that you get in London and you come for an experience in a beautiful environment, you get things there. I just think asking what's the store for and where am I in this store? So what's the local geography and thinking more along those lines? It is not the answer, but it will certainly start moving you in the right direction. Yes. Well, we're running out of time, guys. So if you could, like maybe 30, 60 seconds each, I'll start with you, Jack, as to what you think John Lewis should do next. I'm just going to echo so much of what Jeff's just said, because I think it's such a good point. I think that it's a, it's a rethink of strategy. I think definitely thinking more about what the stores are for, who they're for, what they're doing in their different locations. I think Jeff's point about that local audience is so important. But fundamentally, just, do you know what? Going back to basics, remembering what made them the retailer they were in the first place, refocusing mm-hmm. on that stuff great service, great products that exactly where they were as well, where they were in the scale of premiumization and going right back to a point earlier as well, remembering that they probably are for an older customer and that is absolutely fine. And they should maybe be prouder of that and own that and not worry because do you know what? One day, maybe the younger customers will come along as well, but they won't come along if you desperately run around trying to attract them. That's not going to work. <laughs> yes. 
Maybe target the 35-year-olds, not the 15-year-olds. I agree. Yeah. One final comment from you, Jeff. Um, what, what's your view on what they should do? Yeah, I'm going to sound like a broken record here and, and, and just a parrot of what Jack said. But I think you know, get your strategy right. Actually understand who you are and what you are. Stop looking external for the solution. Stop looking peripheral. It's not going to be a brand extension. That's not the way through. Figure out what you are. Figure out you've got a lot of assets there, good assets, brand assets, a great deal of credibility with the, with the country. You're in some great locations. And then just double down on that. Get clear around who you are. Stop trying to be all things to all people or chase some fictional customer that you think is there and focus on who you're doing dealing with and then make it as make it an experience that cannot be replicated in another context. Bring back the service, bring back the environment of, you know, the heart of the community, play that role. Brilliant. That's a wonderful point in which we should end the conversation. Thank you very much, guys. Always a pleasure chatting with both of you. And thank you for your input on one of our nation's sort of favorite retailers. So thank you for your time. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.